Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello and welcome. This is Ilya from the Spectrum Strategy Group, and uh, I'm so happy today we have Eric Endlich with us uh, from Top College Consultants. And uh, I know, Eric, you and I have met before at conferences and doing um, other type of work together, but uh, I really like if you just give us a little bit of background on yourself. Sure, and thanks for having me on the show, Ilya. Um, so I'm Eric Endlich, founder of Top College Consultants. I work with teens on the spectrum, applying to college and graduate school, and my background uh, professionally is as a clinical psychologist. I worked for many years with teens and adults, um, including quite a few on the spectrum. I'm also an autism parent, and as far as I know, I'm the only person doing this work specializing in helping teens on the spectrum transition to college who is also on the spectrum myself, so kind of a triple threat as a parent and, and psychologist and person on the <laughs> spectrum as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I really, so as you know, people on the spectrum have special interests and two of mine are autism and college. So when I'm working with autistic teens or, or adults uh, applying to college and grad school, I'm, I'm in my element talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's perfect that you brought that up because one of the things I've been talking with a lot of clients about uh, is this concept of creating your own path, right? And some of that is following what your passion is, following what your special interests are. And you've actually done that, right? You've taken the two things, put them together and are, you know, working with, um, you know, families and students as well. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a while for people to figure out what those interests are or how to apply them to a career or, or to apply them to studies. But often people get there sooner or later. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually um, something that I, I think a lot about. I know many parents and myself included uh, as a parent of a young adult. Uh, you get concerned with what happens after high school, right? Like, so they've gone through this process of with, I mean, if, if, if even things have all been put into place, like all the supports during, you know, elementary, middle, high school and the IEP meetings and all of the accommodations and all of those things, what happens next, right? Like, so will my, you know, will my kid be able to go to college? What should they do post high school? How do I even know? Um, so when you have families uh, thinking about these things, how do you approach this kind of topic with them? Okay, well, well, first of all, you know, I, I fully appreciate that not everyone um, needs to or wants to go to college. Um, sometimes people have other career paths in mind. You know, you can go into a trade, um, like 
carpentry or roofing or electrical or plumbing or HVAC. You can get certificates in IT subjects, learn computer languages, uh, become a medical coder or a phlebotomist, do things in the health care world without going to college. There's plenty of good jobs out there that don't require college, contrary to, to popular uh, notion on that. Um, but for <laughs> students who are capable and interested in it, you know, I really want to help them access college. And um, there are some, some students on the spectrum who really want to be around college kids, want to have the college experience, but if they have intellectual disability and they're not fully college capable, they're not really capable of accessing the curriculum, there's still programs, non-degree certificate programs available on college campuses throughout the country uh, that these students can go and have a college experience and live in the dorms and be in clubs, um, take classes and learn a lot of life skills um, without necessarily being in all of the same courses or having to have the pressure to earn a degree. So those are, those are good op um, options in some cases for students who may not be college capable, meaning that they aren't able to perform at a college level academically. Now, for students who can perform academically at a college level, there's still a lot of, there's still a big difference between being college capable and college ready. So if a student is doing pretty well academically in high school, maybe with accommodations, um, but they're say they're taking honors courses, AP courses, dual enrollment in a community college, they might say, well, I'm pretty sure I can handle college. Look, I'm, I'm handling tough courses in high school. And I would say you probably can, you probably will be able to go on to college and handle the material. But there's many other aspects to being successful and getting through college and simply being able to handle the difficulty of the material. So it's not just about getting in, it's about getting through right. and getting out and of course getting a job at the other end. So the, about, <laughs> yeah. about a third, a little over a third of students on the spectrum go to college, go on to post-secondary education, but some studies suggest that most of them don't finish and get a degree. Some people question those statistics, but, but at least from what we've seen, you know, the, the rates of graduation could be a lot higher. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot in, you know, what you just said. So, so definitely, I know many students who, you know, same thing, I've worked with students who get into the schools, right, get into the schools that they really want or that their families want, should I say, too. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, they, uh, they get in and, yes, academically, sometimes it's not even, right, is not the struggle. The academics are fine. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the, the other pieces are? I mean, I can guess some, but I want to <laughs> yeah. hear from your perspective yeah, yeah. Um, and this is, what uh, that could be. Yeah, yeah, and this is actually one of the main reasons I became an educational consultant. As I mentioned, I, was a I am a clinical psychologist, and I had seen teens in my psychotherapy practice go off to college and not even get through the first year because they weren't college ready in other re respects. And then they would, you know, come home and be depressed. And uh, it not only was it a huge waste of time and money for them and their parents, uh, but it's a huge blow to their self-esteem if their peers are going on and staying in college and they're back home, you know, working a minimum wage job or worse yet, you know, doing nothing. So 
Um, so, so that really, you know, upset me and made me think there's got to be a better way. And, and there is. And we'll we'll get to that later, hopefully, about, you know, what are the options or what are the, the pathways for students who need more help with readiness? So back to your question on, you know, what are those other pieces? I like to break it down into three main areas, self-awareness, self-advocacy and self-management. So self-awareness is knowing yourself, for example, knowing, you know, subjects in school are you good at? Which are the ones that you struggle with? If you have struggles with certain things, that's fine, but you need to know that so that you can get the help when you need it. Um, and do you know when you're struggling with the course and, and you need help? And that's just, that's just one small piece. Same thing would apply to emotions. Do you know what your style, how you respond when you're under stress, when things get difficult? And of course, you know, these days with the pandemic, we're all under a certain amount of stress. Um, but how do you respond to that stress? What's your style? Do you jump in and try to attack the problem? Do you tend to retreat or withdraw or isolate? Do you reach out to other people for support? Because, um, you know, depending on your strategy, you may need to um, do things to address that. And then also, are there things that you are vulnerable to under stress? For example, do you tend to become depressed or anxious or develop an eating disorder or an addictive behavior, which could be a substance or it could be an activity like um, video games or gambling. Um, and if you know that about yourself, that you have that vulnerability and you know what are the signs that you're starting to sink into that pattern, then you can take steps to address it. It's okay to have vulnerabilities. It's okay to, to be challenged with certain courses or with certain emotional issues. As long as you know those things about yourself, then you can go to the next step, which is self-advocacy, and that is being able to kind of, you know, ask for help, being able to speak up. In an academic setting, that could be going to a professor and saying, you know, I'm having trouble understanding something. Can I meet with you during office hours so we can talk about it? Or going to the tutoring center and getting yourself a tutor. Most colleges have free peer tutoring, for example, and some of them have professional tutors available as well. Uh, going, if you're having a problem in the residence hall, there's usually an RA that you can go to, a resident assistant who can help you figure it out. So being able to speak up and get your needs met, whether that's for medical issues, emotional issues, academic issues, that's critical too. Um, do you want me to pause and see if you have any questions before I <coughs> go no, on? No, I mean, I, okay. think, I think what's what's great is that you, you know, I talk about self-advocacy um, and self-awareness uh, together as a topic all the time because, right, you need, you need both of them. Um, and, of course, depending on each person has their own, their, you know, they're working on some things with, you know, self-awareness, just like all of us, but, and also what, how, how do you enlist the right tools to advocate? So they might know they need help, but sometimes also don't know which levers to pull for that help, right? So sometimes this is where I would think either a coach might come in or maybe a family member or, you know, some their peers at school. I know different colleges have different programs as well that can help uh, with some of that. But yeah, no, I, I'm totally aligned with what <laughs> you're saying. It okay. totally makes sense. Yeah. So, so the one that... Um, that I'm interested about is the self-management piece, yep. right? So, you know, that's yet another layer. So right. I'm curious about your take on that. Sure. Let me just say one more thing about self-advocacy. You said that, that folks don't always know where to go. That's okay. Um, it's okay to know what you don't. In fact, it's helpful to know what you don't know, to know that, you know, I'm having a problem with my roommate, but I don't know who to speak to about it. 
or I'm having a problem with, you know, whatever. It could be the dining hall, it could be a, a course, it could be your course selection. Um, there's loads of, of places to go to, whether it's your academic advisor or the counseling center or tutoring center. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. And again, it could be as simple as the RA in your, um, in your residence hall who might say, oh, well, for that, you need to talk to your academic advisor for that issue. So there are people who can point you in the right direction. Um, and even if you go to the wrong place, they'll, they'll, they'll know the other resources on campus. So they'll you, redirect what, what, you. Yeah, yes. what you don't want to do <laughs> is sit in your room and say, well, I'm not going to ask for help because I don't know if this is an issue for, for counseling or not. Um, right. Because if you call up somebody and, you know, it could be speaking to a more experienced student for that matter who, who may know. Um, and it's good to identify, you know, potential mentors as you go along. Some, if you're, certain programs might actually assign you a mentor and we can come back, we'll come back to talking about programs, hopefully. Um, so, yeah. but let's get back to your question about self-management. Yeah, exactly. So, and just a, a point on yeah. that, I always talk about finding whether it's whether seriously it's like elementary school all the way through adulthood, right, in an employment, is find, finding a trusted person that you can go to and say, hey, I'm not really sure I know what to do about X. Do you have any ideas? And that, that one trusted person, whether it's a roommate, a family member, a friend, or anybody, I think is super key. Or, you know, a therapist, someone that, that they can reach out to. So I, I like that. But yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no problem. Um, yeah, so self-management is sort of the third big area. And I've just split this up because there's so many different pieces of college readiness. It helps me kind of make it a little bit organized rather than just an endless list of skills. Self-management is being able to, to sort of manage yourself, like getting up in the morning um, on time for classes, um, going and getting meals regularly so that you're properly nourished, uh, going to bed at a reasonable hour you know, shutting off your devices or stopping your social interactions or your games or shows so that you can go to bed and get enough sleep so that you have the energy to focus on school the next day. Managing your time is a huge one because high school and college are really almost fundamentally different. They're almost mirror images in this regard. So in high school, your day is very structured. You have a lot of hours of class you know, typical situation, maybe your parents get you up, you have, they help you get breakfast, you get out the door, you go to school, you're in school all day. Maybe you have um, team practice or a club after school or, or an SAT tutor or something. You have dinner, you do some homework, you go to bed, your whole day is, is filled and you don't really have to do a lot of thinking about, huh, what am I going to do today? In college, it's right. almost the other, it's almost the reverse where you you may have a day where you don't have a single class. Maybe you don't have any classes on Monday or Friday, or maybe you have one class and it's two hours in the morning or the afternoon, and you've got the rest of your day to figure out how to spend that. Um, and, you know, if you want to spend that day just hanging out with other kids and chatting, that's fine, but you still have to figure out when am I going to get my laundry done? When am I going to get my schoolwork done? Uh, when am I going to eat? You know, um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, there's a lot of planning involved, and people on the spectrum often have challenges with executive functioning, with organization, planning, time management. Um, if you also have ADHD, that's almost certainly going to be an issue, and then there might be issues with procrastination or impulsivity, difficulty sort of inhibiting your urge to 
go to that party or play that game or do that thing that doesn't involve what you need to do, you know, doing the, the stuff you want to do rather than the stuff you need to do. Um, and being able to regulate, manage all that stuff and plan your time, that's so critical because you could be in classes that you love or classes that you're perfectly capable of handling, but if you're not managing your time well, the wheels are going to eventually fall off. It's going to catch up to you. And in, in high school, there's a lot of safeguards and safety nets. You know, you might have parents checking, you know, looking online to see if you've got your homework done. You might have a teacher saying, hey, you didn't turn in your assignment yes, yesterday. You might have a learning specialist, specialist at school that you meet with who makes sure you get your assignments done. There's lots of safeguards in high school. In college, there tend to be, sometimes there's very few assignments. Maybe there's a midterm and a final. Maybe right. there's one or two big papers or projects. So you could go for half the, the course um, and be really getting very far off track before it comes to light that, that you're not really getting the work done or you're not really keeping up. And then it may be too late to catch up. So right. being able to manage your time is, is really critical. Now, you know, I'm not bringing all this stuff up to make people anxious and think, oh, you know, I can't do that <laughs> or my child can't do that. Maybe he or she isn't ready for college. Um, you know, there, there are ways to address these things. Um, and, and we can right. get to that. But you, you, I'll let you comment on the self-management yeah. before we move on. I just think it's interesting because, you know, those are same, those are the same challenges that I think a lot of students have when they make that change from high school to college. And even, you know, even in an employment situation, although that's more structured, right, because there's expectations that are very clearly defined in that kind of a circumstance. Uh, and I guess the question is, well, wait, if my my peers have the same challenges as I do, but there seems to be sometimes that one little bit of, you know, at some point, I find that, you know, a neurotypical student will all of a sudden say, oh, wow, I really got to get on, <laughs> I really got to get on my work and get that stuff done. Whereas um, sometimes those uh, with autism might say, either get too anxious now because it feels like it's too far behind, right? Like they're too far behind or that piece of, well, I'm not sure where I actually stand. And so get a little bit of that frozen yeah. piece, uh, yeah. right? So that's, I think that's a lot of what you're taught. Like there's a little bit yeah. of a difference. And you, there, you mentioned anxiety. Yeah. I mean, most, most autistic people struggle with some anxiety and anxiety interferes with your ability to think clearly, plan, use all those higher order frontal lobe functions involved in executive functioning, like thinking, planning, inhibiting impulses. So um, if you get anxious, then you can get into a vicious cycle. Oh, I'm getting anxious. I think I'm falling behind or I'm not understanding. That may lead you to then, as you said, freeze or run away, you know, not literally, but just kind of uh, hide in, um, in other activities rather than doing what needs to be done or going to get help. So um, that's, and, and that t ties into emotional self-management. And as a psychologist, I'm particularly interested in the emotional side of things. Uh, it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to get anxious. It's okay to get frustrated, uh, worried, what have you, about what's going on. But you need to be able to manage those feelings and have strategies. So you, know, you can notice that you're getting anxious and think, oh, you know, I'm getting so anxious, it's making me want to do X. I better get this under control. I better use the strategies that worked for me in high school 
Like I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to journal or talk to a friend or, or meditate or go see a counselor. There's loads of strategies out there. You need to know what works for you or learn what works for you so that you can get those feelings under control so they don't interfere with your success. And that's true whether it involves getting your schoolwork done, getting along with your roommate, or whatever the, the issue might be. Yeah, and so I want to go back to two things that you mentioned. One, what you just mentioned about, you know, there's there are loads of strategies out there that you can enlist, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'm all about yeah. is finding strategies. and that's part strategies. of self, self-awareness is knowing what works for you. You know, right. I, I can't tell everyone, oh, you should all do yoga or you should all meditate because that isn't going to be right for everyone. But you need right. to know what is going to, you need to discover what works for you. And then the other piece that you mentioned was, um, you know, that there are programs and different types of things in place. And and I see there's two things here. One is it's building this self-awareness before we get to a place where they've applied and now they're going to go away and they've not been away in an unstructured environment before, right? Um, and so what can we do early on, you know, before they're in that place? Um, and then, okay, once we know that they're in that place and they're going to be in school X, um, what kind of resources can they enlist? So I, I think I, I kind of tend to like the first one more because then you might need fewer strategies right, later right. on, yeah. right? Well, but. there's actually, I actually think of it as three different paths. Um, I just, I guess I like the number three. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so the first one, as you, you alluded to, is to try to address these, these readiness skills in high school before college starts. You're going to have enough things to deal with when you go to college and you move away and you're doing all these things for the first time. The more you can kind of get skills you can get under your belt in high school, the better, so that you're not also having to learn all these skills in college. Um, so, and of course, that, that means identifying which skills you need to work on, and, and that's part of what you know, I, I try to do with, with families and during high school, if you still have time, you can work on these areas. And if you're the student and you're like, well, yeah, I know I'm not very good at X, but I don't know how to work on it. You can ask your parents. You can ask your counselor at school. You can ask a teacher that you have faith in. This goes back to kind of what we talked about before. Reach out to some sort of trusted right. mentor figure and say, you know, I realize I'm not very good at time management. I'm not very good at, at handling my, my anger or my frustration, uh, but I don't know what, what to do about it. Um, obviously, mental health professionals can can help with some of this too. If it's more of a time management or study skills issue, being organized, there are academic coaches, executive function coaches that can help. You can hire these folks in high school. They can work with you in person. They can work virtually. Everybody currently is working virtually, but some, <laughs> some people were doing it even before the, the pandemic. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, you can go online and, and Google you know, how do I uh, improve my time management skills or that sort of thing? So there's lots of resources. There's apps that, that folks find helpful. Um, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but you know, yeah, there's a lot no. of different strategies. Yeah, so, for sure. So that would be one path would be kind of getting as much as possible um, improved and up to speed while you're still in high school. Then you will be college ready or more college ready. And let's face it, even neurotypical schools, students aren't a hundred percent college ready. I don't mean to imply <laughs> right. that like that the rest of the population has all of this stuff mastered by the time <laughs> they start college. Um, it's right. The more, you know, the, the less you have to figure out in college, the better, because you're also going to be dealing with more challenging academics in general 
So you don't also right. want to have all these other hills to climb. Um, so the second option would be to take time between high, high school and college. And this is, of course, something that folks are talking about a lot these days because people aren't entirely sure what's going to happen in the fall. And some um, seniors who are going off to college in the fall have you know, thought about taking a gap year. There's a lot of different reasons to take gap years. One is just, of course, you've got another year to mature and work on these skills. But I don't think just taking a gap year to wait a year in and in itself is a good plan. You need to have a plan for what you're going to do during that year to be more ready. Now, maybe that year is spent working at a job, uh, you know, finding a job. At the present time is a whole other topic, but uh, <laughs> but if you you know if you do have a paid job and and you you might have opportunities to learn money management and being showing you know getting up early and showing up to work on time and interfacing with customers and learning communication skills. So there's a lot of stuff you can learn while you're on the job, and of course also save money for college. Um, but in addition to that sort of you know, traditional thing that lots of kids might choose to do, work for a year before they start college. There are gap year programs, um, college readiness or PG, postgraduate year programs, specifically focused on the stuff that we're talking about, helping kids become more college ready. And people may not realize that these programs are out there. Uh, I'm not saying they're cheap, but they are out there um, <laughs> for, for students to be more prepared, whether it's in the academic skills, you know, um, organizational skills, emotional skills, um, a variety of different areas. There are yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot help. of, yeah, some really good, there's some really good programs out there, but you're right, they're not cheap. <laughs> yeah, and they, they have, they come in different flavors. You know, there's yep. residential programs where you live there, often in an apartment, you're learning living, independent living skills, social skills, um, all kinds of um, different life skills. Those tend to be the most expensive because you're paying for room and board as well as all of the programming. Um, there are non-residential op options too. I'm aware of one that you can actually do in your senior year of high, uh, high school. So you can actually sort of do it concurrently. Um, so there are some non-residential options too. Um, and so that would be, you know, the second option is, is take some time work on these skills before you start college. And then the third one would be to work on the skills in college. Um, and as I think you said before, that's the hardest because you're, you're doing other stuff too. And the more you have figured out earlier, that the better. But what not everyone realizes is there's a lot of support programs out there in college. So if you just pick any random college uh, because it's the college that your parents went to or the college that your friends are going to, or the college that your high school counselor told you you'd be good for, that may or may not be the best choice in terms of success because of all these other readiness issues. But there are colleges that have academic support programs, or perhaps the gold standard in this case, you know, an, an autism support program, a program that's specific for students on the spectrum that is going to help with, with you getting your assignments done, it's going to help with you connecting and making friends, possibly help you with uh, the career piece of learning how to interview and network and get a job after college. So some of these programs are pretty comprehensive and they kind of hit all the basis of social, academic, career, life skills. Uh, and so you might have challenges in a number of these areas. You could go to a college that has one of these programs and really 
work on a lot of these skills in college and get through a college where you might otherwise not make it through. And some of these, a number of these programs keep statistics and they can say, you know, 80% or 90% of our students do graduate after, you know, four years or six years, which is, and, and those numbers are often in contrast, not just to autistic students elsewhere, but to even neurotypical students in the same colleges frequently aren't, are graduating at lower rates. So these programs can make, can, can be, make all the difference in terms of whether a, a student will, will graduate or not. Again, that it, they, they're not necessarily cheap. Sometimes they're several thousand dollars a year on top of what you're already paying. And we're not going to talk about how expensive college is. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that could be a hour. whole other. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. But th some, they're, not, they're not all expensive. Some of them actually don't involve any additional charge. Um, I've actually collected them and listed them on my website, topcollegeconsultants.com. So if folks are like, oh, you know, where do you find these? Or I've never heard of these. You can find a whole list of them on my, on my website. Um, and they come, but they, again, they come in sort of different levels. So some of them may be just, maybe it's just a social group that meets twice a month, whereas another one might be much more comprehensive, like what I was describing. There are some programs that are not autism specific, but if your main challenges are in executive functioning, in organization, planning, time management, more of the ADHD kinds of stuff, and not so much the social piece. Um, because contrary to stereotypes, some folks on the spectrum are extroverts and, and pretty good at making friends. Um, so if your main concerns aren't really the social stuff, but the other stuff, um, it doesn't have to be an autism-specific program. It could just be an academic support program. And a number of colleges are very strong in, in these programs. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, I think another option, and you mentioned the, you know, that the it's more like this four, five, six-year time to complete schooling. Um, and again, it's not just specific to kids who have special needs. This is, you know, it's, it's a common trend. And I think, you know, this goes back to thinking about, right, what works for you, being self-aware. Um, maybe sometimes I've, I've talked to a lot of families about um, limited course loads in each semester or, you know, breaking things down or, um, you know, maybe your child needs to live closer to home or live at home at the same time. You know, so uh, I think that self-awareness piece is uh, really important when making a selection, like you're saying. Yeah, and you, you um, touched on this, this other pathway of sort of splitting up starting college and moving away. You know, we traditionally think of moving away and going to college as being one and the same, but plenty of students separate those two and they stay at home and start college while they're still at home, either by going to the local community college or the local state college that is close enough to commute to, being a commuter student, or potentially by studying online, which of course is much more in people's consciousness these days. But it's an option that's been around for quite a number of years. And uh, online education done right is much better than the emergency education online that, that um, high school students just dealt with in this past <laughs> So don't take, yeah, you know, actually, a lot of high school students are like, oh, I'm so done with this. You know, this, this is terrible. This is nothing like being in school. Um, not all students. Um, some students on the spectrum actually prefer it to being in class for, for a variety of reasons, like sensory sensitivities. Um, but many students feel like, oh, that was terrible. You know, my teachers didn't know what they were doing. Well, they didn't. You know, we were all thrown into the deep end. 
Um, but there are college professors who've been teaching online for a long time and know how to do it right. So um, that's a perfectly viable option. And it's often cheaper, too. And I saw that you po you posted um, an article about that. And I uh, I was really interested because you likened it to, to media in general, right? How it was like, oh, no one will ever give up their television mm -hmm. for, you know, on-demand watching. And mm -hmm. here we are, right? So mm -hmm. um, this is a similar thing where we kind of got thrown into it. Some people were already ahead of the curve, right? And were already on board. But, uh, but again, this is still yet another option that could be offered um, that, that exists already for, you know, our folks so that they can access, you know, classes and be able to still live at home or live in, in an environment that works for them or be able to work as well. And again, adding more flexibility um, to what could be, you know, you know, already challenges existing, right? Let's just add a little bit more flexibility for making life a little easier. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the media analogy because there are folks, obviously, who are still listening to vinyl LPs for their music. There are folks who still like CDs. Um, I, I think the, the audio quality of CDs is great. And then there's loads of folks who are, who are live streaming their music or, or um, downloading their music. And um, same thing for visual media, lots of different ways to access it, whether it's a, a VHS, most kids don't even know what that is, uh, or a, D, <laughs> a DVD or, or, you know, like, or streaming um, media from, from Netflix or another provider. Um, so there's all these options that are still available now. It's not like, oh, the CD disappeared and no one can listen to CDs anymore. And, and it's the same thing with education. Uh, I don't think the on-campus experience is going to disappear overnight. Uh, unfortunately, I do think probably a lot of colleges will close for financial reasons, but there'll still be plenty of options. I mean, there's four, upwards of 4,000 colleges, so they're not, they're not all going to close. Right. Uh, and and I love the you know I love going out to campus. I, I tour fifty plus colleges in an average year. Um, this obviously isn't an average year, but, no. but I, you know that's one of the things I love about. It. I love going to colleges. Their campuses are beautiful and interesting. They've got so many cool things going on. Um, so for Very students who want that experience and families who can afford that experience, by all means, keep doing it. But for students who can't for one reason or another, whether it's financially or um, for something to do with uh, their, you know, sensory sensitivities or being overwhelmed being on a college campus, there are options for studying online and continuing your education. It's not one or the other. Um, and by the way, when I mentioned the third option of kind of, you know, getting support in colleges, I can break that down more, more into even finer distinctions. There are a couple of colleges in the country that are exclusively for students with learning differences. Again, something that not everybody knows. So there are different levels of expertise in, in helping students on the spectrum. Um, most colleges have no particular expertise. Some colleges have you know, a specialized program, and then there are colleges that do nothing but working with the neurodivergent population. Yeah, and I, some of the work that I have been doing uh, has been around going to many colleges, again, not now, <laughs> but before, um, you know, sort of educating the faculty, educating the counselors and advisors around working with people on spectrum so that they can help tailor uh, some of their, you know, offerings and their services uh, because they understand that, hey, we, we want 
you know, this population here and we want to make sure we can better serve them so that they have the right support, which I think is great. And I know we're in the kind of baby steps of that with a lot of schools, but, um, but we're starting somewhere, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in this regard, just as with, with racism and, and other challenges, um, most folks mean well, um, but they simply don't know how to do things differently. So um, it's not like uh, professors don't want to be helpful to these students. They just may not understand. Well, I don't know how you learn. I don't know what your particular challenges are. Um, so some of that ends up being on the student to educate. Uh, I'm not saying it should be on the student. I'm just saying as, right. as a matter of course, it ends up being on the student to say, you know, I really need this accommodation or going, you know, the, the first step is, is actually going to disabilities center and getting the accommodation. But it might be sitting in the front row. It might be having your laptop in class. It might be wearing headphones. There, there's all sorts of accommodations that are going to help a given student thrive in college. And they need to be surrounded by folks who uh, value their differences and encourage them to succeed in the way that works best for them rather than saying, you know, that's weird or nobody else does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I've worked with, you know, my own son has had some of those challenges. I know other students that I've worked with have, have had those challenges. Um, and so again, you know, we have that self-awareness and then self-advocacy. And I think we're touching a little bit on disclosure here, yes, right? Yes, Too. And so sort of edging into it. <laughs> <laughs> which, which makes sense, right? Because that's like, would be the next piece is it is, um, and I know it's been a source of frustration for many students is why does it have to be me that has to, you know, teach other people about how I learn? And, uh, and, and yes, it is frustrating, but you're right. Sometimes it does fall into that place. Um, and so then we do fall into having to disclose. Um, so what do you, you know, what are your thoughts around uh, disclosure and how students, you know, what are the different ways that students can do that? Yeah, well, let me just say a couple of things about the big picture um, before I go into the the details of answering that. Um, and I'm, I'm actually very much a detail-oriented person, so um, it's, it's rare that I can talk about the big picture. But to me, the big picture is, is you know, stigma and, and embracing neurodiversity as a society. And it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. If people don't disclose, they can't really expect to be embraced by their environment, by their society, by the society, if people don't even know what their differences are. And autism can be somewhat invisible. Um, And as you get older, you get better at masking or camouflaging and becoming even more more invisible. So, um, you know, there might be a stereotype of someone who's sort of obviously autistic, but many of us are not obviously autistic and we've gotten better at, at hiding that in order to avoid being stigmatized. The problem with that is then you can't really expect society to be more inclusive and more embracing if they don't even know. Um, so I, and, and um, I think it's important to be okay with who you are. I don't think of, autism is, is a complex topic. It, of course, for some people it has disabling aspects, but at its heart, I simply think of it as a difference. And a difference that in some contexts is a tremendous asset. Um, and, and employers are actually recognizing this and embracing autistic employees and actively recruiting autistic employees because they see that they, they bring particular strengths. So I don't think of it as being less than or something to be ashamed of. I think of it as something that, that's different that actually complements 
uh, neurotypical people and enriches the society and makes us bigger. I mean, as, as, a, as a species, I mean, you know, Temple Grandin's has mm. got lots of famous quotes about this. She says, you know, if it weren't for autistic people, we, we would all be, st- you know, still sitting around in, in caves and around <laughs> the campfire, you know, that autistic right. people are responsible for iPhones and technology and <laughs> so on and so forth. You know, that's probably slightly oversimplified, but, but it's, it, it still makes a valid point. Um, right. So before I go too far off on that tangent, which I love to talk about, uh, let me come <laughs> back to the subject of disclosure, because um, people are often wondering, um, you know, do I disclose or when do I disclose? Do I disclose? Do I have to disclose it on the application? Should I, you know, is it advantageous to disclose on the application? In theory, it's not going to affect your being admitted one way or the other. Um, by law, it shouldn't. Um, and the, the most important thing is if you need accommodations that you do disclose at some point before you start college. I mean, typically, or a, a, a very natural place to do that would be after you get admitted, after you put down your deposit and you commit to the college, you then contact the disability center and say, okay, let's get this process started. I'm going to need a bunch of accommodations. Let's set up a meeting so we can talk about that. Now, that doesn't have to be the first time you reach out to disabilities. I would actually recommend having that conversation during the college search process because not all colleges deal with this equally well. And you don't want to end up in a college that isn't going to be very welcoming to you. You know, you might say, well, I'm I'm not going to disclose it. I'm going to hide it. I'm just going to, you know, sneak through without anyone ever finding out that I'm autistic. Um, but if you're in a college that doesn't accommodate you well, that doesn't really value difference, um, maybe that's not really a good college to be at in the first place. If you're going to spend your whole time struggling to hide who you are and not be true to yourself. So, yeah, I think that's a valid point when you're, when you're doing your college searches, right? Even if you, your plan is maybe to not even Mm -hmm. invoke, right? Like disability services, but just, Hey, let me just let's just visit and see and see what the, you know, what their uh, position is and how you would access services and what they offer. I, I think that's a great idea. Thank you. And when you're, and, you know, if you're touring colleges in person, which, which is actually starting up again, it's, it's mm-hmm. not, not as much as before, but it's starting to, they're starting to open them up again. If you're starting, uh, if you're visiting a college in person, you can absolutely make an appointment or just walk into disabilities center, you might have to wait if someone's busy, um, and meet with, with the head of disability, disability center or one of the staff who works there to just have a conversation. Here's, here's my accommodations in high school. Here's some of the things I'm concerned about. What kinds of things do you offer? Um, and just let them run through it. Keep in mind that all colleges offer accommodations. So if you're, if you're at an admissions conversation, you're, if you're at an information session with a college admissions professional, and you, you bring up these topics, they're going to say, oh, we have all kinds of accommodations, and they'll go on and on talking about that. Important to realize all colleges offer that. That's, that's just standard by federal law, so that's nothing really special. Um, but you do want to go to the office and see, you know, how many staff do they have? Where's the office located? Is this a place I'd be comfortable going in? Are these people that I feel like I could talk to if I needed accommodations? So have that conversation during the college search process it's not going to affect your admissions at all. They're not going to pick up the phone and call up admissions and say, hey, we had somebody over here on the spectrum. You should know they might be applying. They don't do that. They have no reason to do that. 
um, they they want to help you. You know that that pays their salaries to work with students with disabilities and give them accommodations. So uh, in general, they'll be very welcoming to meet with you. It won't have any impact on your admissions. And if you're really happy with the services and you end up applying there, as I said, you can disclose after you get admitted and after you commit to that college and say, okay, now I'm going to get the process started and get my accommodations and sign up for those extra services. A um, couple things to mention, and you know, this is a, a big topic. One is that some colleges will want good recent documentation. Not all colleges, every college works differently, but some of them are going to want a neuropsychological evaluation within three years, within the past three years. So if you have one from fifth grade, um, that's not yeah. going to cut it. I'm not right, saying that right. everyone needs to rush out and get tested now. Um, I have heard of colleges that actually help folks get testing done at a reasonable cost. Um, but just be aware that, that that could come up. So that's something to ask as you're looking at colleges. You know, If I need combinations, what do you need in the way of documentation? Because frequently the IEP or the 504 plan is not what they are looking for. I'm not saying that they won't look at it, but that in itself is not really kind of sufficient documentation for many colleges. Um, yeah, so and that's, that's something I know working with different, um, you know, transition planning teams is something that should be taken into consideration once the student is transition planning ready, right? So in Massachusetts, I know for us it's 14, which is great. But for the rest of the country, um, federally, it's 16, which I think is a little late personally. Yeah, it's, but, cutting you it know, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of getting down to the wire there. Right. But, I, but still, you know, then thinking of it at that time, right? Say, okay, this is something we need to plan for. Just like all those other things that we've been talking about, we need to plan for um, having that reevaluation just in case it's going to be needed. Post, yeah. and, uh, post high school. Yeah. Yeah. And then the school's documentation may or may not be sufficient, but it, it's a starting point. One other wrinkle on this disclosure question is sometimes people ask, well, what if this is really important to me? What if my diagnosis or, or my struggle is a big part of my um, story? You know, should I talk about that in my college essay? Is that something I, I should be talking about in interviews or in the essay? Um, and that's a very personal decision. I wouldn't make a blanket statement for everyone. Uh, there's also an additional section on the Common App where even if it's not in your essay, uh, if you have something, the main reason to talk about it on, on, in the applications is if there's something that needs to be explained. So if a student, you know, um, went into the hospital for uh, depression at some point in high school and their grades dropped, or if they went on, on medication for ADHD at some point in, in high school and their grades went up, or there's some, something that, that kind of doesn't make sense, uh, there are opportunities to explain that on the Common App and say, you may have noticed this pattern in my grades, and here's the reason for it. So that actually is helpful to do. Um, that isn't going to hurt you. It's actually going to help you, because otherwise the admissions committee is going to look at that and say, well, this is weird. The grades are all over the map. We don't know what's going on. This makes us nervous. If you have a good explanation for it, if you say, well, this is the year where I started on medication for ADHD, and that's why my grades got much better, um, that might be very reassuring to them. Right, right, right. I right. know. I think it's a, that's a great point as well as thinking about um, 
it's again part of that disclosure, right? How do I disclose? When do I disclose? What what are the what are all the different pieces? And yeah, I know there's that, that section on the Common App that does. Is there is there anything else sort of like? Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us <laughs> that, that we're <laughs> right, not seeing? Right, right. You know, and that's yeah, not actually, overt on here. Yeah, and this this year they've added a sort of a COVID specific prompt really? along those lines. So that if there's something about going through this this experience this year that that students want to share, they, they have a place specifically designated for that. Wow. I know, you know, we've, we've touched on a lot of things. It may seem kind of overwhelming, like uh, so many decisions <laughs> and things to think about. You know, that's one of the reasons why there's professionals like me to help people kind of go th through the process that you don't have to do it alone. I mean, you know, and I'm a parent and I have a kid in college and um, I know that it's a lot to learn to get up to speed on top of trying to figure out, you know, what can I afford and what's a good match for my student? Um, right. And if you like doing that stuff, you know, and you want to educate yourself, then, then go for it. You certainly don't have to hire a consultant, just like you don't have to hire a, a realtor to sell your house if you, you know, want to do it yourself, but it's a lot more work. Yeah. <laughs> and no, there are people I, and with I expertise. Know. Exactly. And working with someone like yourself, I know our family did do that, but as well as did a lot of our own, you know, legwork as well. Um, but there are so many resources out there. And even, even meeting with someone just once or twice to help put you in the right direction, given whatever your, um, you know, budget is and what your time frames are. Uh, but I know we used a lot of uh, transition questionnaires that we did on our own that were really helpful about thinking about what kind of school would I want to go to? What kind of environment do I want to be in? What kind mm -hmm. of roommate would mm -hmm. I want? You know, and it just starts to prompt those mm -hmm. thoughts, you know, in high school before you're in it, right? Filling out that housing application and not knowing what to put on there. Um, yep. You know, yep. so so I, I I agree. I think it's really helpful in there, um, working with someone like yourself uh, to kind of help refine that process and have it be less overwhelming. I mean, and let's be real, this is an overwhelming process for everyone, and it does get better when you have a second child going through <laughs> it. But <Yeah. laughs> not another, a whole lot, but you know. <laughs> another um, part of it that can be really daunting for some students is the essays. Um, yeah. Students who have executive function challenges often find writing essays to be one of the most difficult things because it's so unstructured. Right, right. And, and there's no like generic, like everyone's answering the same question. It's everyone's trying to put their story or their experience out there. And how do you make yours stand out given the school that you're in, given who you are um, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I just love working with teens. I love getting to know them and trying to figure out, you know, where where they might really thrive in, in college and, um, you know, how to get them from, from A to, to Z. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I know, you know, we've we've talked about so many different things, and I appreciate you spending this time um, with me and sharing what you know. Uh, and as we said, it's a lot of information. So definitely, you know, they can reach out to me and I can, you know, help what I can. And then, of course, I, you know, can pass on. But um, so where can people find you, Eric, uh, if they want to get more information? Um, so my website is topcollegeconsultants.com. Uh, or they can email me at eric, E-R-I-C, at topcollegeconsultants.com. Um, also, I have a toll-free number, 833-REAPPLY, so um, if they want to call. Um, but a lot of people just, you know, start by perusing my website and then um, take it from there, you know. 
Great. And I know you're also on you're on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. And perhaps we can uh, get, you know, do some more. I know you said you like details. So <laughs> we can pull out some of these topics, right, and focus uh-huh. on some very specific things uh, in the future. Sure. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks Same. Thank me. you so much. Yeah. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.